welcome to a special Easter edition of our time together. So this one is special, this one is different. <coughs> Normally, when I post a blog post, or I do an audio recording, it's me reading what I have already written in paragraph form. This one is actually different. This one is actually written in an outline form. And it's taken me several days to actually write it. And the reason I did it this way <coughs> is because many of has many of us have either forgotten or we have never been told, or we have never known what Easter is really all about. So in fact, when most of you hear the word Easter, the thing that you immediately begin to think of is that crazy bunny, right? So like the Cadbury commercial with the Cadbury cream eggs with the bunny and the tryouts for them. So you think of this bunny that brings egg, eggs and egg-shaped candy to your children. Or some of you will think of the pagan rituals that's celebrating the return of spring the end of the long, dark months of winter. Right. So those are some of the things that you think of when you hear of Easter. Right. Or what many of you will think of. But what the truth about Easter is that Easter is not about any of those things. Because Easter is all about the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. That's what the whole point of this special Easter message is all about. For you see, we must get back to remembering what Easter is really about. In order to do that, we must understand the events that took place starting on Friday and culminated on Sunday over 2,000 years ago. So, to start off, we have to look at the trial and the crucifixion. We have to look at the trial, the crucifixion, and the death of Jesus. And to do that, we're going to turn to Matthew 27, starting in verse 11. <coughs> And going through verse 26. And it says, Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor. And the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. 
and that was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas? Or Jesus who was called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today <coughs> in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, Crucify him. Why, what crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. And Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting. He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. So, what exactly was Jesus being tried for? So, the obvious answer to that is, he was being tried so that the religious leaders of his day could get rid of a rival. Jesus was moving in on their territory. He was encroaching in on their territory. And the only way they could legally get rid of him was to have him tried before the Roman courts for a crime that the Romans could execute him for. So what then was the actual crime that Jesus was accused of? You see, Jesus was accused and tried for the crime of treason, which is the crime of betraying one's country and especially attempting to kill the sovereign or overthrow the government. So Jesus was accused and tried and ultimately, quote-unquote, convicted of rebelling against Rome. So pay attention to that, right? Remember that, because that's important. He was tried for treason. So now we have to ask this other important question. Right about the trial of Jesus. Why did Pilate agree to go along with this farce? Pilate knew from the passage we just read that Jesus was innocent. That he had not committed the crime of treason. <coughs> 
I ultimately went along with it to keep the peace. So those of you who are going to try to make this argument that, well, Pilate was a weakling and he only went along with the crowd, that is incorrect. That is a false statement. History does not back that up. The Roman Empire, the Roman government, would not have made Pilate a governor of any province, let alone a province like Judea. That was a hotbed of rebellion. If Pilate was a weak man, <coughs> therefore Pilate was not a weak man. He was simply trying to keep the peace so that he could save his own skin. Whether or not that made him weak, that's entirely up to you to think. But he acted in a way that many of us would act in a similar situation. And the real reason why Pilate agreed to go along with this farce was because it was ultimately out of his hands. Because this was God's plan from the beginning. And nothing could stop it from happening. So now we come to the crucifixion and the death of Christ. So that's covered in Matthew 27, 26 through 54. So we're going to kind of break this down into sections. So the first section we're going to deal with is in verse 26. Which says, then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. So the first stage of a Roman crucifixion was flogging. So uh, when we talk about Roman flogging, the prisoner or the condemned person, whichever term you want to use, would be stripped naked and stretched against a pillar or bent low over a post with their uh, with their hands tied. So in other words, they were either hung up so their back was exposed or they were bent over so their back was exposed. So the instrument, the instrument that we're talking about that was used to implement this torture was called the flagulum, which is Greek. So in other words, it was a leather whip that had <coughs> thongs laced with sharp pieces of iron and or bone, which were designed to rip and tear the flesh. To rip and tear the flesh. So it would be this punishment, this torture, would be generally administered by two men, one standing on the left and one standing on the right. And they would alternate making lashes across this person's back. So remember when we heard Paul talk about how he received 39 blows? Well, that 
was for be that was beatings or punishments made out in the Jewish synagogue. In Roman flogging, there was no limit. The lictors, who were the two men who administered the flogging, could flog a person who was condemned to be crucified as many times as they wished. That is why writers from from ancient times described victims who had been disemboweled or who had had their bones laid bare by the flagellum. So in other words, picture this. Picture this in your mind. Jesus is beaten so badly and severely that the bones of his back were laid open. Roman floggings could also extend from the from the top of the shoulders all the way down to the soles of the feet. We don't know if that happened here. Quite possibly it may have, but we do know that it was all over his back and that it laid his back so bare. So Roman crucifixion would also involve mocking. So for that, we're going to pick up in verse 27, which says, Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. <coughs> and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put on his own, put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. So, either a red or a purple cloak, it depends on which gospel you read as to what color the cloak was that was placed on Jesus' shoulders. So this cloak, the color of the cloak symbolized royalty. The cloak itself came off the back of the Roman soldiers who were involved in this. So then a crown that was woven from thorns was placed on his head as a joy to cause both for to cause both for the pain and humiliation. So they would take so they took a thorny plant of some kind. We're not entirely sure what kind of thorny plant, or if it was even a thorny plant. It may have been something else altogether. They took this symbol of kingship and jabbed it on his head. Why? To cause pain and to cause humiliation. Because that's what Roman crucifixion was ultimately all about. So then it says they placed a staff in Jesus' right hand. So this staff also represented kingship. But this was not a giving him a staff and empower this was giving him a staff and mocking the very fact 
that he was supposed to have claimed that he was the king of the Jews. <coughs> and then finally, finally, the soldiers would knelt down before him in mock submission to him. So in other words, they were making fun of him. They were saying, yes, we're going to mockingly submit to you. You who would dare, you who would dare to make a claim to Genesis. They claim that you're a king, that you're more powerful than the all-powerful, the almighty Roman Empire. And bear in mind that all of this was done to further the public humiliation of Jesus and ultimately to further the public humiliation of anyone who was condemned to die by crucifixion. <coughs> so it continued this crucifixion process continued as they forced him to march or walk to the place of execution. So we find that in verse 32. And it says, as they were <coughs> going out, they met a man from Sidene named Simon. And they forced him to carry the cross. So in other words, right? What would happen here, what happened here, what we're not told in the Gospels, is that the patibulum, which is the cross beam, would have been tied across Jesus' shoulders and back, tied across this already so badly beaten back across these already badly beaten shoulders. <coughs> The bone had been laid bare by God only knows how many lashes he had received. I'm not told, but it would have been a extreme amount, right? So once they tied the patibulum across his shoulders, then Jesus would have been led through Jerusalem with a Roman soldier carrying the which was a plaque with the name of the accused and the crime for which the crime for which the accused was charged and convicted of. So that would have been the Roman soldier in the front. So there would have been a Roman soldier on either side of Jesus <coughs> to essentially keep the crowds back to make sure that the pathway was clear on the side. There would have been a Roman soldier behind Jesus to make sure that he kept moving, to make sure that he didn't stop on this humiliating march to his death. <coughs> so what we see here is that Jesus was unable to carry the patibulum or the cross beam because he had been so badly beaten because of the physical exhaustion that he was going through because of the mental exhaustion that he was going through because of the spiritual exhaustion that he was going through you must remember Jesus has been up and moving 
sentence sometime on Thursday morning. The last thing that he ate was on Thursday night at the Last Supper. That was the last thing that he ate was Thursday night at the Last Supper. And the last time he slept was probably Wednesday night or had any decent rest, to put it another way. So that is why, so when he, so he was unable to carry it. So we don't know what exactly happened. Quite possibly he fell. Quite possibly he fell several times. Which was important because that caused some sort of injury to his heart when he was That would have led to his quick death. So this process ends with the actual crucifixion. <clears throat> and we're gonna pick that up. And it says, then they came, in verse 33, then they, <clears throat> they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall. He offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. <coughs> Above his head, they placed a written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels crucified with him. One on, his, one on his right, and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. <coughs> he saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him. Now, if he wants him, for he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. <coughs> so when they reached Golgotha, which would be the place of execution, Jesus was stripped of all his clothes. Traditionally, traditionally, keep this in mind, traditionally, we don't know for sure if this is what happened or not here. Traditionally, when they say stripped of all their clothes, that meant that he would have been, that the condemned person would have been hung on that cross, naked, completely without any clothes, completely exposed to everybody around them. We don't know if that is what happened here. <coughs> but we do know that he was stripped of all of his clothes. Very possibly to the modesty of the Jewish people and the fact that the Romans needed to keep the peace with the Jewish people. He would have been allowed to keep the loincloth that would have not exposed his privates to everybody. So at this point, after he was stripped of his clothes, his arms would have been secured to the patipulum with both nails and rope. 
so the nails that would be used throughout this process would have been iron spikes approximately 5 to 7 inches long so that's 13 to 18 centimeters for those of you who deal with metric with a after 3 eighths across or 10 millimeters so to better understand that to use a modern size nail to make you understand this that's about the size of a 40 penny nail that's about as big a nail as you can get today a 40 penny nail is a little bit wider but it's about the same overall size it's the closest approximation which is primarily used as a framing nail big nails long nails right so once this hands have a nail with these long spikes to the particular it would have been raised up with the with Jesus attached to it and fitted onto the stipe or the stipes which is the vertical beam the part that stands upright so once this is done the titulus will be placed on the top that's why the pictures show this lowercase t type cross when in actuality it would have been more of a capital T type cross <coughs> so Jesus' feet would then have been nailed to the stipe right with the same type of nails that his arms were attached there so we don't know exactly where the nails would have been placed some say wrist some say hand palms some say would have been put through the radius we don't know exactly where the nails were placed in the feet we don't know if they went to the actual top of the feet or if they went in through the ankles we don't know for sure we just know that that is how he was attached to the cross <clears throat> so now that we understand that process so let's understand a little bit about what would have happened to the victim the victim would have remained there on that cross alive for days after they died they would have often been consumed by dogs carrion birds or insects so in other words they would have been left to rot in place on this cross crucifixion victims were generally not given a burial so now let's talk a little bit about the way a crucifixion victim usually died they usually died from suffocation or from excuse me from asphyxiation not from suffocation so in other words so when they're stretched out on the cross with their arms wide and their feet secured at the bottom right they have to push themselves up and pull themselves up in order to breathe and the longer they stay there <clears throat> the more they do that the more tired their legs get and the more tired their legs get the harder it gets to push themselves up to get air and eventually what happens is they're not able to push themselves up and they die from a lack of oxygen 
And so that's why Josephus described crucifixion as the most wretched of all ways of dying. And Cicero said that crucifixion so frightened Roman citizens that they refused to speak the word cross. In fact, the word cross in Latin came to mean the same thing as torture. So now let's talk. So now we come to the to the part where we're going to talk about Jesus' death and more important its significance. So here is what it says, bro. That's going to be in Matthew 27, 45 through 54. <clears throat> and that says, From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Halamashabeskiyai. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said he's calling Elijah. <clears throat> Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. <clears throat> At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rock split, <clears throat> and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. So remember when I said about how crucifixion is Crucifixion, <coughs> crucifixion victims usually died. They usually died from asphyxiation because they could no longer push themselves up to cause their diaphragm to move up. So they could exhale and then inhale. Right. So if you'll notice, that's not how Jesus is described as having died. Because Jesus died very, very quickly. Right. So Jesus has hung on that cross probably sometime around noon, maybe a little bit earlier, sometime between 10 and noon, right, and it says <coughs> that for about five to three hours that he hung on that cross, not a whole lot of time compared to how long it normally takes a crucifixion victim to die, only it would take them days, not hours. So remember I said earlier that when he could not carry his cross, the patibulum, up to Golgotha, what may have happened is that he may have fallen. He may have lost his balance and fallen several times. <clears throat> and the last time, he simply could not get up. And when he fell, he would have fallen forward, landing on his chest, bruising his heart. Which means that his heart is now bruised, which means he can't 
carry this, which means that when he comes and he starts to put stress on that heart, it's going to start beating harder and harder and harder. And it's been weakened because it's been bruised. In other words, it's called an aneurysm. <clears throat> which just means it's a weakening of a blood vessel, or the weakening of the heart in this case, <clears throat> which is caused by bruising. So as his heart beats faster and faster and faster because of the stress put on it by crucifixion, it explodes. That's how they believe that Jesus died. They believe he died from a massive cardiovascular incident not from asphyxiation. So, <clears throat> what is the, then, the significance of not so much how Jesus died when it comes to physical terms. Doesn't really matter that he died from a heart that burst. What matters is what came after that. Because you see, we're told that that at the moment that he died, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. We told that there was an earthquake, right, which caused the rocks to split open. We're told that the tombs broke open. And we're also told that the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. And that they came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. And the fact, the fact that this pagan Roman centurion witnessed all of this caused him to say, surely he was the son of God. So that means that these events had some sort of significance. So what is that significance? In order to understand that, we've got to go back to the first thing that we said, which is the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And to really, really, really understand what is going on there, we've got to go over to Hebrews chapter 9. As you see in Hebrews chapter 9, we see this comparison and contrasting between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Right, so starting in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 9, so we're going to go Hebrews <coughs> 9, 1 through 10, which says now the first covenant and regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up in its first room with a lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of a manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the Covenant. Above the ark with the cherubim, cherubim of the glory, overshadowing, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the 
priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, <clears throat> and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed. <clears throat> As long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink, and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. <clears throat> so the first thing we see talked about here that's of any significance is the Ark of the Covenant, which was the most sacred furnishing in the tabernacle or the temple. So they talk about the tabernacle here, it would have been the temple, when Solomon built the temple, and so on. Right, so, <clears throat> it was the most sacred. Uh, sacred furnishing in the tabernacle or the temple. It was a rectangular chest measuring 3.75 feet long, 2.25 feet wide, and 2.25 feet high. It was made of acacia wood. It was overlaid with pure gold inside and out. And most importantly of all, it represented God's presence among the people. Right. So there were three items that were originally inside the ark. <clears throat> you had a jar of manna, which was the food God miraculously provided in the desert. You had Aaron's staff, which served as a reminder of God's mighty acts and his choice of Aaron and his descendants as Israel's priests. And thirdly, you had the two, <coughs> the two, t uh, excuse me, the two stone tablets on which the Ten Commandments were written, serving as a reminder of the law's importance as God's standard for His people. So the lid of the Ark of the Covenant was a golden plate, and it was called the Atonement Cover. It had two solid gold angelic figures on either side of what was called the Mercy Seat, on which sacrificial blood would be sprinkled, <coughs> showing God's saving mercy through shed blood. So now let's focus our attention on the second thing, which we just talked about a little bit about. <coughs> Excuse me which is the atonement cover, the atonement cover. So what they're talking about here when they talk about the atonement cover, and so it says, when everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and then only once a year and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. So what's happening there? Right, so on the Day of Atonement, the blood of two animals were sprinkled as an offering to God. The first animal will be a bull. 
Right, so the bull's blood made atonement or sin covering for the high priest and his family. And the second animal was goat. Right, so that was goat's blood, which served as an offering for the sins of the entire nation of Israel they had committed in ignorance. In other words, they committed without knowing it, or that they committed and didn't realize they had committed it. So that's what we're talking about here. We'll talk about the atonement cover. But more importantly, the atonement cover was a prophetic symbol of the heavenly throne of grace, which we can now approach because of Christ's shed blood in order to receive mercy and help for all our needs. And so the last thing they talk about was this inner room. Right, so they talk about how the priests could enter into regular into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But uh, they could only but only the high priest go into the inner room once a year. Right? So the inner room was called the most holy place. And it symbolized God's presence. And bear in mind only the high priest could enter in only once a year on the day of atonement. So what the writer of Hebrews is teaching here is that under the old covenant, unrestricted access was not yet possible because intimate companionship. But what God was teaching, excuse me, what God was teaching was that under the old covenant, unrestricted access was not yet possible because intimate companionship with him <coughs> could exist only when a person's inward conscience had been cleansed perfectly. And he was also teaching that the law and its sacrificial system could not provide such a cleansing because only Christ's perfect personal sacrifice could sin could complete cleansing from the guilt of sin. So that's the old covenant, which was symbolized as being broken or being fulfilled when the veil of the temple torn in two. Now we come under the new covenant, which was brought about through the blood of Jesus. And this then the blood of Jesus signifies his sacrifice for our sin. It is so excuse me, excuse me, hold on. Before we get into that, right? So we've got to read what the writer of Hebrews says. So we're gonna go from Hebrews nine, verse eleven, all the way down through verse twenty-eight, which says, But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here. He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness from acts 
that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom, <coughs> to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. So in the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect. Well, the one who made it is a living. This is why even the first was put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to the people, and took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll on all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in, the, in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. <clears throat> it was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these for Christ not in a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one he entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own otherwise Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So you see, the new covenant was brought about through the blood of Jesus. And it signifies, the blood of Jesus signifies his sacrifice for our sin. The blood of Jesus is central to our redemption. The blood of Jesus was shed to remove our sins and to restore our opportunity for a right relationship with God. And this new covenant through the shedding of Jesus' blood does these things for us. It provides forgiveness for the sins of all who turn from their own way and put their faith in Christ. It justifies all who entrust their lives to Him. It ransoms, which means rescues and or restores all true believers in control of Satan and evil powers. It cleanses believers' consciences from guilt so that they might serve God with full assurance of salvation.
sanctifies, which means it purifies, refines, develops, and set up <coughs> and sets apart for God's service, God's people. And it opens the way for Christ's followers to come directly to God through Christ in order to find grace, mercy, help, and salvation. It is a guarantee of all the promises of the new covenant and its saving and restoring and purifying power is continually made available to believers as they come to God through faith in Christ. <clears throat> so before we move on to talk about the resurrection, I want to conclude this discussion of Hebrews chapter 9 with this to the sacrificial ministry of the old priesthood was unable to perfect the worshippers conscience was unable to 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 uh, perfect our consciences while the old priesthood was incomplete the sacrificial ministry of Christ is able to cleanse our consciences this perfect cleansing enables us as the followers of Christ to engage in works that serve the living God. So the ministry of Christ is that of a new covenant mediator. His ministry is superior because he does not enter an earthly sanctuary, but into heaven itself, and thus into the very presence of God, unlike the high priest who entered annually into the most holy place. Christ entered into the most holy place once for all time. Unlike the old covenant that was integrated, <coughs> excuse me, inaugurated by the death of animals that had no choice in the matter, the new covenant was inaugurated by Christ's voluntary death. Unlike the old priesthood that offered the blood of animals, Christ offered his own blood. Unlike the old priesthood that offered sacrifices, continually without effect, the blood of Christ obtained eternal redemption. So now that we understand the significance of Christ's death, let's move on to how this story actually ends. Excuse me. Because you see the story doesn't end with Christ dying on that cross and being left to hang and rot there. It ends with him being put in a tomb, which ultimately ends with him coming up alive out of that tomb. So let's pick that up in Matthew 27, verse 57, and go, from, go through <coughs> all the way through Matthew 28, verse 10. So 27.57 says, As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb. He had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, 
we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, pilot answer. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on stone and posting the guard. After the Sabbath at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was an <clears throat> there was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so terrified, were so afraid of him, that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped, <coughs> clasped, clasped his feet, excuse me, and worshipped him. Then Jesus sent them, Do not be afraid, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there you will, there they will see me. So the resurrection, right? It's the central truth of the gospel. And apart from it, we could have absolutely no hope. Right? And the mere thought of it scared his enemies. They made up a lie about it that his disciples wanted to come and steal his body. In fact, in fact, <clears throat> See, in the very next section of Matthew 28, which is 11 through 15, here's what that says. That they made up this elaborate life. They paid these Roman soldiers to lie about it. And it says, while the women were on their way, some of the guards went to the city and reported to the chief priest everything that had happened. When the chief priest had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you say, you are to say, excuse me, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. This report gets to the governor. We will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. So the mere thought of his resurrection, and the mere fact that the Roman soldiers saw this, caused these religious leaders to pay them off, had them so scared that they made up a lie about it. So then what is the importance of his resurrection to those of us who believe in him? 
proves that Jesus is who he says he is. It proves that he is the Son of God. It guarantees the effective result of his death for our sin. That it certainly did provide the means of forgiveness and a restored relationship with God. It verifies the truth of God's word. <coughs> it is proof, it is proof of future judgment on the wicked. It is the foundation for Christ's gift of the Holy Spirit and renewed spiritual life to his people and for his current ministry in heaven as the intercessor for all who rely on him. It assures us as Jesus' followers of our future in heaven and of our resurrection when he returns. And finally, finally and most importantly of all, it makes Christ's presence and power over sin available in our everyday lives. For you see, it's the death, burial, and resurrection that Jesus provides us. It, for you see, it is through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that we are provided with our living hope. Because without Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, we would still be trapped in the mire of all our sins. Because Christ's death, burial, and resurrection provides us with the means to be set free from the sins of our past, the sins that we are committing now, and the sins that we will, will, not me, but will commit in the future. So as you listen to this, one of my most favorite songs, think about that, because the fact that we have a living hope is the true reason for Easter. Spoken, I am forgiven. The 
The promise you'll pay.